Hello and welcome to episode 22 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. I have been flooded, flooded with responses to the most recent poll question, which was to name a recording artist who is a triple threat, one who can sing, play, and write with equal facility. Y'all really answered the bell with this one. I was fielding not only emails and Patreon messages and DMs on Instagram and Twitter, but phone calls and texts. Even my mom texted me to weigh in. It's crazy. Uh, Many of you also mentioned that this was more challenging than you thought, which is why it's fun, because you immediately think of a dozen triple threats. But then, upon reflection, you eliminate them one by one, and you really can't be too partisan about it. But let me just say I'm overjoyed at the level of discourse here. Uh, Many of you included with your nominations long and impassioned defenses. Uh, If I read them all, it would take half the season. So without further ado, let's get into the results. In art, there are no right or wrong answers when it comes to taste, and there's no such thing as objective truth. There is, however, one exception to this rule, one that 90% of you seem to agree with, and that is this. Prince is a force of nature, one of the great wonders of the universe, objectively awesome, and if you don't think so, you're wrong. Prince got the overwhelming number of votes, and is also on my own list. In fact, Prince is pretty much the standard by which all other triple threats should be measured. If I ever conduct this poll again from now on, I'm going to stipulate, other than Prince. I need to mention that one of you nonconformists considered Prince, but disqualified him for reasons that I will begrudgingly concede are actually pretty sound. I quote my very good friend and musical mentor Eric here. If Prince went to try out for the Allman Brothers, those dudes would have said, buy some denim, you're in the band. But then I thought, he would have to be a contributing member to an all-time great band, and there is no way Prince was going to allow any ideas to happen that weren't his, so he's out. I don't know. I mean, that's that's tough to argue with. Okay, so I'll start with my big four. My big four are Prince, Joni Mitchell, John Martin, and Sir Paul McCartney. As I said, the majority of you also included Prince, and many of you, at least ten of you, mentioned Joni. Shockingly, only three of you mentioned old Sir Paul. As for John Martin, uh, he's obviously a bit more obscure than the others. He only got one other vote besides mine, but... If you aren't familiar with the man's work, uh, I encourage you to check out his albums Solid Air, Bless the Weather, and One World, for starters. Uh, If you want an idea of how big a fan I am, you can Google image search his album Stormbringer with his then-wife Beverly, and then my album Second Attention. Paying tribute to the album cover in such a blatant way might suggest an unhealthy amount of hubris on my part, but my intentions were pure because... If I can expose just one person to John Martin's magical music, I'll have done my job. Okay, so honorable mentions. Before I get to your answers, here are some other names I considered for my list that no one else mentioned. I think a persuasive case could be made for the following artists appearing on such a list, but for various reasons, they fall just slightly short in one or more categories. Like they'd get a 10 in two of the categories, but maybe only an 8 or a 9 or even a 9.5 in a third. Those artists are Shuggy Otis, Nick Drake, Greg Allman, Nina Simone, Jackson Brown, David Crosby, Sting, Nick Cave, Tim Buckley, Alex Chilton, Alan Toussaint, 
Todd Rundgren, Louis Armstrong, Steve Winwood, Peter Hamill, Chris Squire, Adrian Ballou, Bruce Hornsby, and Bobby Womack. And I know a lot of you are going to push back on this one, but look, country star Brad Paisley belongs here. I'm not saying I'd rather listen to Brad Paisley than David Bowie. I'm just saying he checks all the boxes. If you've never heard him play guitar, check him out on YouTube or something, because dude's a wizard on the Telecaster. And I like a few of his hits, which he rewrites, and uh, I think he's a good singer. Interesting that only one of you, Alexander, mentioned anyone in the genre of rap music, but that's probably my fault for phrasing the question in terms of singers rather than vocalists. Uh, we should expand the criteria, because the, the late MF Doom, who made beats, rapped, and wrote, obviously, would definitely fit the bill if we expanded the criteria. Uh, RZA comes close, as does Lord Finesse, Mad Lib, possibly. Alexander's pick, Scarface, is certainly someone I'd consider... Though I'm not sure how big a hand Scarface had on the production side of things. Now, it's also important to not mistake a visionary or genius for a triple threat. Many of you who sent nominations also added the caveat that you didn't especially like the music of the artist that you nominated. And that's good. That's definitely in the spirit of the game. Because if you can't concede that someone you don't like could potentially be a triple threat, you aren't playing by the rules. Like, if Thelonious Monk sang, or if King Diamond played an instrument or if Elton John wrote his own lyrics, they would definitely be contenders. But if we're being truly objective, the harsh reality is Eric Clapton and Don Henley arguably belong on this list of triple threats, while Sun Ra and Hank Williams do not. Look, I don't like it either, but those are the rules. You don't think I want Donald Fagan, Randy Newman, Burt Jansch, or Frank Zappa on my list? Because I do. But none of them would get a job in Prince's band as just a singer despite their supernatural levels of talent in the other two categories. So the following are artists that one or more of you voted for that I think are strong contenders, despite how I might feel about the music they make. So we'll start with the ones who each had one vote. Lady Gaga, Phil Collins, Billy Joel, Alison Krauss, Annie Clark, Ray Charles, Dave Grohl, Ethan Miller, Jeff Lynne, Willie Nelson, Bjork, Thundercat, Sly Stone, Tom Waits, Joao Gilberto, and Jorge Ben. And the following artists got two votes each. Carol King, Marvin Gaye, Chuck Berry, Richard Thompson, Quincy Jones, Stephen Stills, and PJ Harvey. Leon Russell and Harry Nilsson each earned three votes. Curtis Mayfield earned four votes. And Stevie Wonder got a whopping nine votes. Like I said, I could see good arguments for all of those, but I could also probably argue for their exclusion, too, if I was splitting hairs. There were two artists who got a vote apiece whose music I've never heard, uh, John Grant's solo work outside of the stars and Ryan Power. I'll put these guys on my list to check out. Also, there were five single votes for contemporary artists who I've omitted for one of two reasons. Either they've released fewer than five records or they're a personal friend of mine and I can't in good conscience evaluate them here one way or another, so these names have been left off. Maybe that's unfair, I don't know. Now, the nominations that I don't agree with, although we can agree to disagree, are as follows. Freddie Mercury, four votes. Sheryl Crow. Jerry Garcia, two votes. John Bon Jovi. Gil Scott Heron. Steve Goodman. Beck. Bill Monroe. Elton John. Pete Townsend. Aretha Franklin. Rocky Erickson, Brian Wilson, Jim James, Chet Baker, Robbie Basho, Taj Mahal, Dolly Parton, Elvis Costello, Bruce Springsteen, D'Angelo, 
Lindsey Buckingham with seven votes, Kate Bush, David Bowie, two votes, Marcos Valli, Caetano Veloso, Peter Gabriel, and Jimi Hendrix. Now, I'm not going to address all of these, but I'd like to talk about a few. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham's name came up a lot, and I'm definitely a fan, though not nearly as big a fan as my wife, Leah, who provided one of the seven votes. But I mean, I've seen him play a few times, and I think between me and Leah, we own every record he's played on. Uh, but there's only one great songwriter in this particular lineup of Fleetwood Mac, in my opinion, and that's Stevie Nicks. Bob Welch would count if you were taking the band's entire history into account. I'm a Bob Welch nut. Anyway, Lindsay's lyrics can be trite, and like Crosby, I feel like his gifts as a singer are often better served in support of a lead vocalist in the form of a background and harmony vocals and arranging. Uh, as for Freddie Mercury, an undeniably great singer, and he wrote a lot of Queen's best tunes, but I've never heard him play anything that's knocked me out. Now, again, we can agree to disagree, and my exclusions have nothing to do with my feelings about the music of those artists, one way or another. I'm a big fan of Kate Bush, Elvis Costello, Rocky, and The Boss. Uh, and as many of you know, you will rarely meet a bigger fan of Jerry Garcia, Chet Baker, or Bill Monroe. But, okay, Jerry, like Elton, wasn't a lyricist, and is definitely too idiosyncratic a singer to rank. Chet Baker, man... Uh, in all my years of record collecting, I think my desire to collect Chet Baker LPs in mono, especially like the stuff on Riverside, has resulted in some of my most reckless and exorbitant purchases. No buyer's remorse, but my Chet fixation has definitely threatened at times to put me in the poorhouse. So you could say I'm less a Chet fan than a Chet lunatic. But here are the facts. He barely wrote anything. He had a fairly narrow range as both a trumpeter and a vocalist, and he couldn't read music. Now, this last part actually makes him even more of a dynamo, in my opinion, because he played by ear and intuition. But I do think this would disqualify him from joining Weather Report. Sorry. Bill Monroe. <sighs> this one's also tough for me, because Monroe's a pioneer, uh, one of the greatest singers I've ever heard, an underrated writer. But the guys who came in his way could smoke him on the mandolin. Now, he created a vocabulary for the instrument. He pretty much single-handedly invented a genre. I'm taking nothing away from Bill Monroe. I worship Bill Monroe. Desert Island dude for me. But in a double-blind contest, Sam Bush or really any number of amateur bluegrass parking lot pickers could destroy him. Now, this, this creates a problem, right? When we're discussing dead musicians, it's anachronistic because subsequent generations always build off of the foundations of those who came before. And they develop new techniques and innovations, and, and this is all part of the beauty that is the long continuum of recorded music. So is it fair from a technical standpoint to pit Wynton Marsalis or even a randomly selected, relatively competent Berkeley trumpet major against Louis Armstrong or Miles? Could Glenn Gould have outplayed Bach? I mean, we'll never know. It's fun to think about, though. I'd like to thank everyone who contributed, and I apologize if I leave anyone out here, because as I said, it's been, a, it's been a torrent of responses. But rest assured, all votes were tallied, and also, I know some of you only by your Twitter handles, so sorry about that too. Uh, thanks to Joanne, Nigel, Corey, Jay, Noah, Rona, Paul, Nasa, Jillian, Zach with a K, Zach with a CH, Travis, Jonathan, Feathered Coyote, Tom Peach, Joe, Nancyan, Buck, D. Snuffy, Ashley, Ged, Chris, Brian, 
Jen, Angelo, Patrick, Ryan, Alex, Deborah, Alexander, Andrew, Josh, Eric, Eamon, Johnny, Andy, Scott, Sam, number one burning treated wood fan, and the gang over at Second Row Social Club. Woo! If this trend continues and the polls continue to be this popular, uh, I may have to quit romper rooming y'all in the episodes, but thank you all for participating. And uh, if that sounds tedious, just remember we're ad free as of uh, episode 22 here. So hope to keep that going. And lastly, before we move on, I need to mention that two friends wrote me after the last episode to inform me that the sweaty, coked up, sax playing ponytail guy from The Lost Boys, which we discussed last episode, uh, real name Tim Capello, is indeed still performing. And my buddy Christian, who actually booked him to play just before the pandemic hit, assured me that Tim's show was good and he was a really nice and self-aware dude. Christian also schooled me on Tim's resume, which I guess includes touring with Tina Turner for years and playing on a couple Peter Gabriel records. So now you know. Good for Tim. Like I said in the episode where we first discussed him, I'd totally go see him play. So we're rooting for you, Tim Capello. Now, on to this week's topic, which I've resolved to keep positive. But before we can get too positive, some real talk. One of the functions of this podcast is to dispel certain myths about the music business. Now, I understand a lot of my listenership is comprised of bands and label owners and booking agents and other people in the music business or the entertainment business, so I realize I risk insulting your intelligence, but please bear with me while I take the form of the brat on the playground that tells the other kids that it's one of their parents leaving that dollar under their pillow and not the tooth fairy. When you go see a show, any show, you're witnessing a performance that has been plotted and even in some ways rehearsed way in advance. And yes, this goes for free improv and noise gigs too. There's necessarily some level of expectation and information on the part of the performers that an audience cannot have. Have you ever met an artist you really liked and said something like, man, I saw you when you were here in 2003, when you opened for so-and-so, and there was the guy yelling out for you to play such-and-such, and the artist doesn't remember, doesn't have a clue what you're talking about? Or maybe he or she politely pretends to remember? I've been on both sides of this, and the fact is, on tour, if you're playing every night for weeks or even months, the law of averages says that unless something absolutely crazy good or absolutely crazy bad occurs, to the band, most gigs are just another night on the road. That thing the band did when they went off mic and played their encore in the crowd while everyone sang along? Well, brace yourself. They did that every night. It's showbiz. And just because a band is on an indie label and touring in a van rather than a private jet or whatever, it doesn't make them immune to the siren song of a little razzle-dazzle. A few years ago, I saw a reunited Iggy and the Stooges twice over a two-night stand. The first night was amazing. Everything you could have wanted in a Stooges show. So imagine my disappointment the following night when the set was identical. I don't just mean the set list and the music. I mean the banter, too. Even the inflections were the same. So let's go back to this law of averages thing. If you're on tour for a month, roughly 15% of those shows will be great. You play well, the crowd's into it, the vibe is just right. Maybe there's a bonanza at the merch table and you sell every t-shirt and koozie you have. Now, 10% of the shows will be terrible. The sound is so bad you can't hear anything, a fight breaks out, or you get stiffed for your fee, or literally no one comes, or only five people come and they're all on the guest list. I mean, that's worse. 
And worst of all, maybe your van is broken into and all your shit's stolen. You'll definitely remember that gig. But the rest, the remaining 75% of shows that will make up the majority of a tour, are just not that memorable. This doesn't mean they were bad or you didn't play your best or whatever, just that they tend to blend together. And that show your favorite band played where you met your future bestie and the crowd was dancing and... The singer was in a good mood and made jokes about your city and you grab the poster from the door and have it framed in your office because it was a night you'll always remember. Well, the band's conversation in the bus or van afterward, if they discussed the show at all, was probably like, Hey, Bill, you missed the transition to the bridge on the new song. Or, Hey, Becky, remind me to solder my input jack tomorrow. Uh, This is sobering, but it's rare that a band playing 150 shows a year will come away with the same feeling about the show you saw as you did. It's not to say that it's ever perfunctory, like I said, but one can only have so many unforgettable evenings in a lifetime. Here's yet another embarrassing toth tale in which I come off like a complete idiot, but in the interest of, um, science, it may help illustrate the point I'm making. I was playing a solo gig in Iowa City many years ago, having a good time. Iowa City's a cool town. And halfway through the set, I had to tune my guitar, which means banter time, right? So I decided to talk to the crowd. Thank you for having me, I said from the stage. This is a really cool city. I've never been here before. To which someone in the crowd responded, You've been here. You stayed at our house last time. Fuck. Sorry, Iowa City. Now, there are many shows I have attended as a fan that I'll always remember seeing. But I know now, after two plus decades of touring, that there's no way that the show I saw could ever mean what it did to me to the band who played it. At this point, I've definitely played more shows than I've seen, and I recognize now, being on the other side of the magic show, like it's changed my fandom, right? It's really hard to feel like I've ever just seen a once-in-a-lifetime, life-altering gig. I feel kind of like a magician at a magic show. And this is sad, yes, but it's also part of growing up and getting older. But, and this is where the positivity I promised you is coming in, uh, there's another way to think about this, one that's consistent with the episode theme of positivity, and that is that seeing behind the proverbial curtain doesn't have to diminish your enjoyment of a concert. Maybe forget about the band. Think instead of the strangers around you experiencing this moment together. The band on stage is merely providing the soundtrack to this very beautiful ritual. I mean, how often in your life can you be present in a room with a hundred or 200 other people, 500 other people, 5,000 other people, and know that all of you have at least one very important thing in common. That's no illusion, that's real. So, you know, when you're stuck in traffic leaving the Megadome or the Frito-Lay Pepsi-Plex after you just saw Dylan play, and everyone is trying to get out of the parking lot at the same time, it's a different kind of traffic, isn't it? I mean, everyone in that gridlock, everyone in those cars, is also a Bob Dylan fan, or was at least dragged there by one. So Bob Dylan won't remember the show at the Frito-Lay Pepsi Megaplex. Who cares? As a performer, I should mention that I'm a notoriously poor judge of the worth of a particular show I've played, and this has been borne out many times over the years. The gig where I spent the last third of the set fantasizing about quitting the band, well... That's the one where afterwards someone comes up and says they've seen the band play 12 times and this was the best one. And then sometimes I'll come off stage thinking, man, that ruled. You know, band was on fire. And I'll rush over to the merch table expecting to sell a bunch of stuff. And it's just crickets over there. And everyone sort of shuffles out trying not to make eye contact. 
This is actually the only thing I like about cell phones on tour. Well, okay, that and the Shazam app. But, you know, you can pretend to be texting at the merch table so you don't look quite so sad and pitiable sitting there hoping someone buys a record, like the dog at the pet shop with one eye. I used to try to record as many of my shows as I could on tour, but when I listened back after the tour, the ones I remembered being really good were often not good. And the bad ones, where we couldn't hear each other on stage and the monitor mix was terrible, it would sound great to me on the tapes. Now, I was going to seg here into talking about the worst shows I've ever played, but in the spirit of the great conversation we had earlier about triple threats, as I said, I'm determined to make this the positivity episode. Uh, at least from here on out, starting now. I, I mean, I've already risked disillusioning some of you about live performances, so we'll save the tales of bummer times for a later episode. Instead, I'll share with you two stories about shows that would fall under that 15%, even though in both cases, it wasn't the gigs themselves that were memorable. Sometimes on tour, you can't believe your unbelievably good luck, and you find it in the strangest places. Like the time I found myself waking up in a mansion just outside Phoenix. The previous night on stage, I got on the mic and said to the crowd, Hey, if anyone can put us up tonight, we'd be most grateful. This was a regular spiel whenever we had failed earlier in the day to secure a place to stay or didn't have time or money to book a cheap hotel room on our way into town. A few days into the tour, various members of the band would begin to chime in to make additional comically asinine requests. Breakfast is on you. We promise not to leave our needles in your sink. That's sort of nonsense, which in retrospect, maybe we did to counter the indignity of having to ask a room full of people who just paid to see us play if we could crash on their floor. So on this night, I said my usual piece about needing a place to crash, ending by saying, and we'll need a pool. A big in-ground pool, continued Heidi, taking my cue. On stage improvisation was not necessarily confined to the music. Puppies, said Lucas into his mic. Lots of fluffy little puppies that like to cuddle. And dinner, said Jarvis. And a big private room for everyone, please, of course. By now I'd finished tuning and we got back to playing, concluding our little improv comedy bit. As soon as we finished our set, two identical-looking young surfer-looking boys approached us cautiously. Um, we have a big room for all of you guys and a nice pool, one of them sheepishly said. And there's a lot of food and weed and a few dogs. The dogs aren't puppies, though, they said, apologetically and apparently sincerely. We understand if you don't want to stay. An hour later, we found ourselves frolicking in a giant pool. More of a large, heated, saltwater lagoon, actually, complete with a waterfall. In the backyard of one of the biggest houses I've ever seen. In a gated community in either Mesa or Gilbert. There is some dispute among the band members about exactly where this was. By the way, if you can ever swim on tour in the ocean or a river or even a hotel pool, you gotta do it. It's restorative. Uh, one time someone asked our band, Why do you guys like to swim so much? And Lucas offered the perfect response. He said, being in water is the exact opposite feeling to being cooped up in a van. Anyway, back to the mansion. So the house had a courtyard in the middle of the house. And all around us were these young boys and girls in bathing suits, diving and reveling and laughing. Everyone, the boys and the girls, seemed to have the same long blonde hair. It was surreal. It looked like a cross between like Whoville, a Dennis Cooper short story, and Dogtown and Z-Boys. We met a trio of dogs named Mercy, Grace, and Chewbacca. We floated and drank expensive bourbon and smoked California weed and did handstands in the moonlight. Absolutely surreal and amazing. 
At this point, we are the happiest people in the world. We each had our own private room, though the couples remained together, of course, not that we weren't tempted to take full advantage of the private digs for the night. Stuffed with food, pleasantly baked, and refreshed from swimming, we settled in for a good night's rest. Well, most of us did anyway. The next day, Lucas, who was always delegated the point person any time the rest of us just wanted to get some sleep, told us how he'd spent the night hanging out with our cultish hosts. Like I said, this part was typical. Lucas would often stay up all night with our many hosts, even jam with them and stuff, and invariably he had great stories to share with us the next day in the van. He also had an enterprising knack for selling merch during these late hours. So the following day he was eager to tell us everything he learned. I was shown early 2000s era flash animation web comics, he boasted, and the shower water wouldn't lather because it was soft and magnetized. Huh? Yeah, he continued, clearly about to burst with information. Didn't you guys notice how the sink was weird? He asked intriguingly. It runs on magnets. Everything in the house runs on magnets. The fortune of this palace, he continued, and many others in Phoenix and Florida, are built on a particular type of magnetic therapy. Okay, so the backstory here is that some eccentric millionaire who'd made his fortune either inventing or marketing magnet therapy would frequently allow local teenagers from the area to house-sit while he went away on business. These teenagers happen to be at our show. We can never be sure what the exact nature of the relationship was between the millionaire and the kids, but we didn't really care. But waking up in a mansion, man, shit, life was good. That was the only time we stayed in a proper mansion, but we had many other lucky breaks. As I mentioned in a previous episode, one thing that will kill you on tour if you let it is boredom. If you've ever been on a family vacation, you know that humans seem to have a need to distract themselves from the motion of the vehicle or the tedium of the drive. But tour is like a Sisyphean sort of Groundhog Day version of a family vacation. Instead of the reward of a beach or a cabin or a luxury hotel at the end of an arduous journey, you wake up the next day and begin the traveling part all over again. Always going. Never really arriving. It's vacation with all of the associated tedium, exhaustion, sense of displacement, and endlessly making sure you have your keys, wallet, and your phone. So you have to make fun where and when you can. One way we killed time on the road, especially when we were running early, was by busking. Now I will concede that there was more than a bit of what some might call hipster irony in these roadside diversions. I mean, we were snobs. Bands like ours signed to labels who toured and played festivals. They didn't busk. You know, but someone in the band suggested it once as a joke, and before anyone could poo-poo the idea, we were all piling out of the van near some main drag in some small city, dragging an acoustic guitar. So we learned a lot about busking during this time. We learned uh, quickly that no one watching you busk on the street sticks around very long, so you really don't need much of a repertoire. We all sat on the sidewalk, putting out a hat to collect what we expected would be dimes and nickels from the pitying pedestrians, and we only learned two songs, Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline and Vacation by the Go-Go's, and we performed these as a medley. This was the entirety of our repertoire, just those two songs over and over and over. I strummed the guitar while everyone sang, and even if we didn't make any money, this was always a fun way to kill an hour or two between a stop at the local coffee shop and getting back on the road. One afternoon, we arrived in Kansas City about six hours early for our show there that evening. Let's busk, suggested Heidi. We hurried out to the surprisingly crowded town square and began our silly routine. 
After a few rounds of Sweet Caroline into vacation, into Sweet Caroline, into vacation, and on and on, a thin man in his early 60s, wearing a rumpled, though obviously expensive suit, staggered over, looking amused. When we finished our song, he clapped, with long silences between each clap, which concerned me because I was worried he was being sarcastic and there was about to be trouble. He then produced from his pocket a crisp $100 bill. This $100 is yours if you can play me a Dylan song, he said. Now this was too good to be true. Jarvis and I knew the Dylan catalog really well, and the others were at least familiar with a large portion of Zimmy's discography. And none of that blowing in the wind shit either, the man clarified, waving the bill. I looked at Jarvis, who looked back at me, and then at the man. Basement tapes? Jarvis asked. That'll do, said the man. I began strumming the chords to You Ain't Going Nowhere, which, in its better rendition by the birds, has room for everyone to sing a harmony. So the man tapped his foot and sang along as we played the song. True to his word, he deposited the $100 bill into our straw hat. Very nice. Nice voices, he said. Then he asked where we were from. We told him we were all living in either New York or Tennessee, and that we were on tour. On tour, eh? Suddenly he looked distracted. Let me, let me go, uh... Find my wife, he stammered. I don't know, I don't know what the hell she's doing. It was at this point we realized that the man was maybe a little more than just a tad inebriated. I mean, he was sloshed. I'll, I'll be back. You think of one to play for Blood on the Tracks next, he said, and began to walk away. Let's get the hell out of here, I told the others. Why, asked Lucas. If we stick around here, we'll make more money than we'll make at the gig tonight. Yeah, said Heidi. That guy's crazy drunk and probably rich. Let's play him a few more Bob Dylan songs. Most of the others agreed, but Jarvis read my mind and was probably thinking the same thing. Guys, he said, that dude's wasted. As soon as he finds his probably sane and sober wife and tells her what he just did, she's going to tell him he's crazy and he's going to come back here and demand his money back. Yeah, I said, let's not push our luck. We put it to a vote and ultimately decided to leave. We grabbed the money out of the straw hat and ran like hell back to the safety of the van, $100 richer. Lucas was, as I recall, indeed right about one thing. $100 was more than we made at the door that night. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging tiers begin at only $5 a month and give you access to lots of cool stuff, including early access to each new episode of The Toth Zone. I'm also going to have the third digital mixtape of the year up in time for the first day of spring. The new mix is the most eclectic yet. There's obscure 80s art pop and baroque psych and stoner jazz and mutant techno, rocksteady and dub and country funk. I try to make it as seamless as possible, but you know, Trying to get from Dale Hawkins to Lee Perry on the same mix is a daunting task, but I'm up for the challenge. Uh, if you'd like to email me, you can reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. And now we will end with the new poll question. Now I'm torn here because I'd like to keep these conversations positive, and this is the positivity episode, but the negative stuff is more fun. So I agonized over this, and I came up with a question that I think splits the difference. The question is... What is the worst song by your favorite band? Bonus question. What's a song you like by an artist you hate? You have a little over a week to think about this and hit me up. 
and I'll be revealing the answers on episode 6, which will hopefully be available in two weeks. As for episode 5, we have something a little special planned for next episode. I don't want to say too much about it yet, but it's going to be a good one, so definitely tune in. And I'll dispense with the listen log this time, but tune in next week for a few recommendations. Uh, I've gotten some good feedback about this segment, so I'll continue it for now, or at least until I start getting emails from publicists. See you next time. Till then, this is The Toast Zone.